0: An elderly couple is sitting together on the couch. His head is resting gently in her lap. And as she sweetly strokes his forehead, she takes off his glasses and says, You know, with your glasses off, I see that attractive young man I fell in love with 50 years ago. And he responded, And with my glasses off, you look pretty good, too. And a silly story has a simple truth. When clarity is absent, trouble is almost always present. So I'm so glad you've joined us here at the Hills, whether South Lake or Westmore Campus, watching online or in person here at our NRH our campus, because we're spending the month of August regaining some clarity. We're fixing our focus so that we will focus on. What God said should be clear. And our theme verse is Micah 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does God focus on? Justice. Mercy. Humility. Repeat. Everyone say that with me. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. I want those words to burn into your memory and your heart. Let's say them again in case your neighbor is uh, hard of hearing. Justice, mercy, humility, repeat. So we'll look next time at mercy and in two weeks at humility. But today we are going to focus on justice. Because God focuses on justice every day. See, God doesn't just like justice. God is justice. God doesn't just set the standard. God is the standard. Justice matters because it is grounded in the very character of God. The psalmist in chapter 89 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne." Love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 33 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. The Lord loves justice. And I think there's a reason why across the globe people care deeply about justice. Because they are made in the image of God. So we value justice even if we don't acknowledge why. And this is unique to the human species. If a lion pounces on a gazelle, the lion doesn't feel guilty that it hurt the gazelle. The other animals don't start a protest to defend the rights of the vulnerable and the weak. You see, if you don't believe in a Creator God, and if your worldview is mechanistic, there are just cosmic accidents, and everything has happened by random chance, why do you care about injustice? You should expect it. Your worldview says the way the world continues is that the strong take out the weak. But we don't want to live in that world. Regardless of our worldview, we all want justice. And and when we say that, primarily what people mean is we want to live in a world where there is the fair and equitable prosecution of the guilty. When you hear the chant, we want justice, it typically means it doesn't care if it's a member of law enforcement, a powerful politician, a powerful CEO in the marketplace, or even a member of the clergy, no one's above the law, that there's fair and equitable prosecution of people that do wrong. So most focus on punish instead of flourish. Now, the Bible does talk about that kind of justice. The Bible does speak often and clearly about retributive justice. But the Bible speaks most often about restorative justice. This is very important. That more than the prosecution of the guilty, the word justice in the Bible chiefly refers to the protection and provision for the innocent. That to act justly is to live in such a way that everyone else has the opportunity to thrive. So uh, in my devotions this year, I've been in First uh, and Second Samuel. So this very week, I'm in 2 Samuel 9, uh, a chapter about David's different military victories. You think there's not a lot of devotional material there until you get to verse 15. It says that David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Now, what does that mean? That David was fairly uh, prosecuting everybody? Of course not. David was a just ruler because he was creating a culture and an environment where everyone in his kingdom could flourish. And God focuses on this. So we saw last time that God is not going to be butt off by religious activity that doesn't major in justice and mercy and humility. Don't you dare think that you can come to some place an hour a week and give God his due and then just go the rest of the week and do whatever you want. God wants to see justice and mercy and humility, and in one of the most powerful prophetic texts in all the Old Testament, we see that. Amos chapter 5. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, God isn't saying that offerings are bad and worship music is detestable. He loves those things. What God is saying is, don't you think you can buy me off with a few offerings and a little praise music and live like you want? I want you to create a world where justice rolls like a river overflowing its bank. Now, what does that look like? Well, this week and next, I want to give you what I think is the best visual picture of justice and mercy in all the Bible, and it's a story of Jesus we sometimes call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, it's not just one of the best-known stories in the Bible, it's one of the best-known stories in the world, because it speaks to such a universal truth and longing. A guy's going down a road and gets mugged and left for dead in a ditch, Now these two guys come along and see him in the ditch. Two guys that work for the local religious institution. And they see him, but they ignore him. But a third guy comes along. And Jesus on purpose made this guy a person despised by that culture. His status and his ethnicity put him on the outside. But that third guy got down in the ditch and helped the man. And Jesus said, that's what it means to love your neighbor. And from that story, I want to establish three critical pillars of what I think it means for justice to row. And the first is obviously that we don't do people wrong. We don't do things that put other people in a ditch. Just people don't cheat, they don't victimize, and they don't take advantage of their neighbors. Now, you've got to appreciate Micah's context. I said last week, Micah lived at a very unique time. The Assyrian Empire was threatening Israel, and in Micah's lifetime, the northern kingdom fell and was taken captive. Now, what happens in war? Men die. You have widows, you have orphans. You have refugees. You have a lot of people fleeing the northern kingdom into the southern kingdom with nothing but the clothes on their back. And you have the context where a lot of injustice can take place. Where people can take advantage of desperate people. And that was happening. People were selling their homes and their properties and their inheritance for pennies. So they could just survive. And Micah speaks to it, chapter 2. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you, find, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. In chapter 3, listen to me, you leaders of Israel. You hate justice and twist all that is right. You're building Jerusalem on a foundation of murder and corruption. You rulers make decisions based on bribes. You priests teach God's laws only for a price. You prophets won't prophesy unless you're paid, yet all of you claim. To depend on the Lord. And then in chapter 7. Officials and judges alike demand bribes. The people with influence get what they want. And together they scheme to twist justice. Now notice that Micah is focusing most of his anger at the powerful people. The judges and the officials and the prophets. Who are taking advantage of the weak. And they would have said we haven't done anything illegal. We offered them this much money for their house, and they took it. And here's the thing. Something can be legal and not be moral. Something can be legal and not be just. Practices that put people in a ditch need to be ditched, even if the law allows them. See, just people are intentionally and ruthlessly examining all of their affairs, so that they don't hurt people. And this is important. The standard is not, well, the law says I can. The standard is not everybody else is doing it. The standard is, does this reflect the character of God? And God has been clear about this. For example, Jeremiah 22, this is what the Lord says Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Don't do things that put people in a ditch. And part of not doing wrong means rescuing people who are being oppressed. So justice is more than just avoiding practices that put people in a ditch. Justice is refusing to avoid the people that wound up in a ditch. See, that's the second critical pillar of justice. We don't do people wrong, and we help those who have been wronged. And that was the big point of Jesus' story. Those two men that walked by could have said, that's not on me. I didn't put him in a ditch. And Jesus didn't fault them for putting him in a ditch. Jesus faulted them for not helping the guy out of the ditch. Justice is more than the absence of badness. It's the presence of active goodness. Just people advocate for and minister to those who have been wrong. And again, God has been so clear that he focuses on this. Like Isaiah 117, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Or at the end of the book of Proverbs, we have this wisdom, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute speak up and judge fairly defend the rights of the poor and needy so perhaps you heard a week ago at the rangers game there was a deplorable incident where a man sitting behind a hispanic family made a number of insulting racial comments even injecting himself into their family picture with an obscene gesture and there was much uh, justifiable outrage and I saw in the paper yesterday the rangers identified that man and have banned him from coming to future games and I was glad about that but when I read the story I had to think if I had been sitting close by and had personally heard and witnessed all that behavior what would I have done would I have said well that's terrible but hey I'm not doing it, and I just came to watch a baseball game, I would like to think that I would have said something. I know my wife would have said something. And I think most of you would have said something. You say, well, pastor, that can be so awkward, I understand. But see, justice demands engagement when detachment feels safer. So I have a uh, friend that preached for a while in a city in West Texas called Lubbock. If you've never been there, West Texas gets these storms that come in and just dump a tremendous amount of water in a short amount of time. And they don't have gutter systems, so the water just rushes into the streets and the streets flood. So that kind of storm had happened. The streets were flooded. My friend had this big old gnarly pickup, so he was going down the road fine. But there was an overpass, and underneath it, the the road kind of dipped, and water was rushing and forming a pool, and he saw a stalled car. And he saw a little old lady standing by that car. The door was open. The water was going inside her car. She had pulled her dress up because the water was up to her knees. He rolled down his window and shouted, Ma'am! Can I help you? And she shouted back, not from there. (laughs) In order to help, you have to get in the ditch. And here's the thing. When you have an opportunity to get in the ditch with somebody, it's going to feel scary. And if you're looking for an excuse to not go there, the devil will always be close by to give you one. But just people refuse to live cowardly lives because they see the image of God in their neighbor. So they become champions for those who have no power. And sometimes they become challengers to people that do have power. And that gets us to our last and third critical pillar of justice. We don't do people wrong. We help those who've been wronged. And we try to right what's wrong. In other words, justice is more than just helping people out of a ditch. Justice is trying to make the road safe. So fewer people wind up in the ditch in the first place. Because injustice is not just personal. Injustice is often structural. In other words, just people are aware that structures and systems can exist. They might even be legal. But they're not allowing opportunity for all to equally flourish. I think two of the greatest men of the last century were Dr. Billy Graham and Dr. Martin Luther King. And they were both strong opponents of racism. Dr. Graham, early in his crusades made it clear he one night saw ropes set up for the coloreds and the whites and he went out personally and tore them down and said you put these ropes up again and i won't preach but he wrestled and struggled with dr king's approach because dr graham believed the way you fight racism is you change hearts you preach the gospel and it starts with the change of the heart and ultimately that is the answer to racism But Dr. King would counter, yes, but there are structures and unjust laws that need to be attacked, even as we wait for people's hearts to change. And he would say, it is true that changing a law cannot make you love me, but it might keep you from hanging me, and that's pretty important too. And to his credit, Dr. Graham, asked later in his life, his greatest regret would say, Dr. King was right. Racism is structural, not just personal. And I should have joined the fight against it earlier. The Bible says in Psalm 103, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And how does God work justice? Well, typically by working through His people. You see, one of the responsibilities of the church is to stand up to power when it's not recognizing the image of God in all people. So I need everyone to lean in for two minutes. Because what I'm about to say has the potential to be misunderstood. Now we live in a crazy world. For that month while I was visiting church planters, I didn't get on Facebook. I didn't read a newspaper. I didn't watch the news. I got to tell you, it was refreshing to go several weeks and not wake up every morning learning what I was supposed to be outraged about today. But I do know, as a follower of Jesus, there is a certain holy outrage I need to be capable of. And I cannot prostitute it to any agency or party. Next year is going to be an election year. And it's going to be ugly. And I can tell you that, and I don't even know who the nominees are going to be, but it's going to be ugly. And the church will have an opportunity to either be a witness or lose our witness. And all the surveys say one of the top reasons why young people are leaving churches is because they believe churches have become too political, and they've sold themselves out to either party. In the pursuit of power. Now listen to me. I believe in supporting our leaders. I believe in praying and showing honor to our leaders. But if you are in a place where you can only see what's right about one party. And only see what's wrong about another party. I fear that perhaps your allegiance is more to a party than it is to the kingdom of God. And so allow me in the next few moments to be an equal opportunity offender. That is why I believe as followers of Jesus, we must speak up for the unborn. We must speak up for the person in the detention center on the border. We must speak up for the prisoner in the jail. We must speak up for the veteran in the hospital that isn't getting the care that he ought to get. Now listen to me. We can disagree on policy. We can have strong, thoughtful debate on what is the best solution to those problems. But this is non-negotiable. As followers of Jesus, we agree every single human being should be treated with dignity because they bear the intrinsic worth of being in the image of God. And we cannot lose our witness in the pursuit of power. That's why I was so proud of you two months ago on Renew Weekend when we identified 12 agencies locally and around the world that are helping keep people out of the ditch. And we asked you to give, and you gave over a million dollars in one weekend just to help people flourish. I want a quick reminder of what you did, so watch this. Justice is a quality education for impoverished kids in every neighborhood and nation. Justice is care and compassion for mothers choosing life for their unborn children. Justice is an adult mentor for every student in every school. Justice is a full stomach and a full heart for those who hunger for both. Justice is a safe haven for children who need a secure home. Justice is loving companionship for seniors in isolation. Justice is a week full of fun and faith that says you matter to God, to kids who wonder if they do. Justice is loving your neighbor like Jesus would. And did you know that the day is coming when justice will cover the earth? A world is coming where everyone will flourish. So one of the most beautiful sections in the book of Micah is that vision of the future the prophet received from the Lord. In chapter 4, the Lord will mediate between peoples and will settle disputes between strong nations far away. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation or train for war anymore. Now watch. Everyone will live in peace and prosperity. Watch. Everyone will enjoy their own grapevine and fig tree. Why? Because there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise. And part of our calling as a church is to be a witness to this world. Of the world that should be. And one day will be. Beautiful illustration takes place in Mozambique. That African nation, when it was decolonized, experienced 15 years of horrific civil war. Over a million people abused and murdered. It was the churches that led the march for peace in that nation. That led to the peace treaty that ended the war. But the problem was there were so many guns out in that nation that had been used for such terrible things. That created the possibility for civil war to break out because of an incident. So the churches started a program called Swords into Plowshares. Bring your gun to a church and you'll get a plow. Or you'll get a shovel. One village brought a whole cache of weapons and got a tractor. And the churches gathered over 600,000 weapons that had been used to hurt and harm. And turned it into a work of art. Look at this. The tree of life, all made out of guns, turned into churches, who announced and witnessed to a way the world could be better. That's what we do. We live in a world today so that they can get a glimpse of the world that is coming. How do we do that? Justice. Mercy. Humility. Repeat. So in two weeks, we're going to have another dollar offering. If you're a guest, that's what we do. We have our regular offering where we pass trays and get our ties. Then we're going to pass the tray again. We're going to ask everybody here and every child to put a dollar in the tray. And across our three campuses, we will collect thousands of dollars, and we will find a family in our city, and we will use that money to keep them out of a ditch. Because I want us to be very, very clear. Justice is never just us. To act justly is to love my neighbor. No matter who they are. No matter where I find them. No matter what they've done. To act justly is to want all to be as blessed as I've been. Pastor John MacArthur says in college... He ran track, and he was on the 4 by 400 relay team. That's where four people run one time around the track apiece. They pass the baton on. It's a very hard race. He ran the second leg. He was given the baton with the lead after the first leg. He ran a strong second leg. They were tied with another school for first place. He made the baton pass successfully to the third leg. The guy took off, went around the curve, down the back stretch, and just stopped and sat down on the infield grass. They assumed he's pulled a hamstring. He's twisted his ankle. They rush over there. Are you hurt? He said, no. I just didn't feel like running today. And his focus only on what he needed and wanted disqualified an entire team. So here's the thing. The way you run your race is having an impact on other people. So this last Tuesday, I spoke a eulogy over my dear friend, Brent Barrow, it was here in this room at North Richard Hills campus, and the place was packed as large a funeral as I've ever preached. A powerful testimony to the impact that one godly life can have. And I kept thinking, what was it that made this one life so powerful? And it's this, Brent didn't just want to run a good race, he wanted to help you run a good race too. When you ran with Brent, you knew he wanted you to win as much as he did. I want to run my race like that. I don't want to just run so that I win. But I want to run my race so that others have the opportunity to win. Because when God judges my race, that is what He will focus on. So let's pray. So God, you have been clear. I am not always And so if I have said anything today that needs to be clearer, I ask your Holy Spirit to do that. Because we want to focus on what you focus on. We want to be passionate about what you are passionate about. We want our hearts to break over the things that break your heart. And so God help us. To understand and pursue a more just way of living. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the world you are bringing. We ask you to come quickly. Amen.